today we have a very special guest with an amazing career from the iconic comedy duo of Tim and Tom to The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and even touring with Sinatra. Not to mention his book just came out last year, uh, Still Standing, uh, my journey from streets and saloons to stage in Sinatra. Uh, please welcome the man who made Sinatra laugh, Tom Dreesen, to the Untied Podcast. Hey, thank, thank you, guys. You, you interrupted my reading. I was reading this very <laughs> funny book. That's a handsome guy on that cover. I got to uh, say. It, that's, it, by the way, that's my prom picture. That's that's really happy. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to say, I was like, you look just like you look on the cover. You know, you still, you still, I, I every time I see it, I've, I've watched, you know, recordings of you from uh, Johnny Carson to Letterman to all of those, and you look like you haven't aged a day. So, boy, I, I tell you what, if I'd have known you were going to talk like that, I'd have done this show a lot earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, so we, uh, we were just, uh, you know, talking before the show, and I was like, he, you know, reading the book and everything, I, I was like, I, I, I'm one of the people that can pick up a book and easily set it down, but not this book. I was turning a page after page after page, like on the edge of my seat. And I was like, I finally get it. I finally get why people read. Um, and it was, uh, just, I, the biggest thing that I, that popped out at me was like, he has had a funny bone his entire life. He's had like a sense of humor. And I know that's a big thing for you developing a sense of humor and, uh, but where where do you think like that, if you could pinpoint where your funny bone came from, where your sense of humor came from? Well, a sense of humor, by my humble definition, is not when you have the ability to laugh at other shortcomings and misfortunes. It's when you have the ability to laugh at your own, you know, when you can laugh at yourself. Um, you know, that, that I think psychiatrists would probably tell you the number one problem they have with their patients is that we take ourselves too serious. We just do. And by the way, stand-up comedians are the worst at that, you know. Uh, but we take ourselves too serious. Uh, and and I learned at a very early age that if you could laugh at yourself or your shortcomings, people were attracted to you. People like to be around somebody who pokes fun at himself or herself, you know. But where I wanted to be funny, I when I was a little boy, and you read the book, uh, so you know, uh, Jordan, that... that um, that shining shoes in the bars when I was growing up, or is it Jackson? I keep forgetting it's, the Polish. <laughs> it's it's Jackson, and uh, I think we said Jonathan. Tom, it's it's whatever Jonathan. you want. <laughs> Anything that starts with a J, a J right? Okay. Perfect. Anyhow, anyhow, Julia, I was saying. But <laughs> uh, uh, you read the book, so when I was a little boy, shining shoes in all the bars. I had eight brothers and sisters. We'll start from the beginning here. We were raggedy poor. We lived in a shack. Uh, you know, rat infested, roach infested shack. If you, if a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. You holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in there. You know, I was a raggedy poor kid. So I, I, at a very early age, there was a mantra in the neighborhood I grew up in that you only deserve in life what you work for. And I went with my older brother and we start shining shoes in all the bars to help to bring money home to help feed my brothers and sisters. And there were eight, there was 36 taverns in Harvey, Illinois, where I grew up at on the south side of Chicago, a suburb. And there were eight in my neighborhood. So I shined shoes in all the eight taverns. And I would go to my uncle's tavern last because that's where my mom was a bartender. And I would wait there for the shifts to change in the factory. And then I'd go back to all the bars again. But while I was there sitting at a table in the back, my uncle, uh, a man named Frank Polizzi, he was my mother's brother-in-law, my mother's sister's husband. 
he would tell jokes behind the bar. And I was fascinated that even as a little boy, that with his vocabulary, his vernacular, his inflection on certain words, he could cause this sound to come out of everybody's body that filled the room like electricity and just united everybody. I, I, they would all become one in their laughter. I just found that fascinating. And, and I used to emulate him. I would tell some of his jokes, many that should not be told on a Catholic school playground, you know. <laughs> but I, I thought it was great getting laughter, you know. So I always was good at telling jokes or telling a good story. I never thought ever in my wildest dreams that I'd ever be in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind. But in answer to your question, I developed that wanting to be funny uh, and wanting to make people laugh as a little boy watching him. And oftentimes the joke was on him. He was Italian and, and he would laugh when you made fun of some Italian thing or something. And, and But in those days, you could, you know, they did. Uh, the Polish guys did jokes about Polish people, the Irish guys, the Irish were the best. You know, you know the Irish. Yeah. Well, no, and they have the, <laughs> I, I, again, a sense of humor is when you have the ability to laugh at your own, yourself or your own shortcomings. Today, with all the politically correct police, who we'll talk about that later, how angry I am at them, but um, that, you know, well, if you're Jewish, you can only tell Jewish jokes. If you're black, you can only tell jokes about black people. If you're Italian, you only tell jokes about Italian people. I grew up in a neighborhood where the Irish, especially the Irish, if they didn't care who was on the stage, an orangutan could be on the stage selling Irish jokes and they'd be laughing. You're right, lad, we like to drink a bit, you know. Uh, <laughs> it, it was it was that everybody laughed at all these uh, ethnicities and 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 the impression that we gave to the other ethnicities, you know, as long as it wasn't cruel, you know, or, or, or but but it would, again, that's where I got my sense of humor and where I wanted to be funny, you know, and where I enjoyed making people laugh. So so Tom, one of my questions is: so one of the best things I think that my dad did for me was uh, in seventh grade, we drove to the grocery store. And little did I know, behind my back, he talked to the manager and wanted me to be put to work. So obviously, you worked at an insane young age. Do you think getting, like, with your situation being really poor and having to work, do you think that work ethic, like, carried over to your career and is still something that, like, because of what you had to go through at a younger age is, I mean, because you didn't, you obviously put work, like, hard work real insane work to get to where you are today. So do you think from your childhood, it carried over to you uh, in the prime of your career and even still to today? Absolutely. Without a doubt, my work ethic came from those days, you know, th without a doubt that all the hardships I went through, if I close my eyes, no matter where I have been in my career, if I was performing at the White House, I performed for five or six different presidents. I performed as you know, for years with Frank Sinatra and 20,000 seat arenas, 40,000 seat arenas in Hawaii. I, I, I performed in these magnificent, on Ellis Island, where my ancestors came from, my Irish and Italian, where no matter where I was, if I close my eyes, I see a little boy with his shine box trudging through the snow and the bitter cold, going from tavern to tavern, trying to make enough money to feed his brothers and sisters. That's who I am. I'm that little boy, and I'll always be a little boy with that work ethic that you only deserve in life what you work for. And no matter how many times I was knocked down, I kept getting back up again. And if you read the book, it's why it's called Still Standing. It's a double entendre. I'm still, right. I've been a stand-up comedian for 51 years, but I've been knocked down a lot, physically knocked down in my life. But I kept getting back up again. And it came from that work ethic, from that, that childhood. 
and and also I have to tell you, I don't regret one bit of that. I, I when I give motivation talks, uh, I give motivation speeches at corporate America and at universities and and, and also to comedians. <clears throat> um, I, I, I do on four subjects. I talk about perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. But one of the things when I open the talk and I say I had eight brothers and sisters, we lived in a shack. Both my parents are alcoholic at one time. I shine shoes in taverns. I set bins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime carrying two bags a day. I, I sold newspapers on the corner. I had a paper up. I tell them that. And I don't regret one moment of that. I say to this day, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me because that's my perception. All of life is how you perceive it. You know, a, a, a quick example, I say to the class, a little boy's in the backyard. He's got a bat and a ball. And he said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He throws the ball up in the air and he swings and he misses. He said, I am the greatest hitter in the world. He throws the ball up in the air the second time. He swings and he misses. He said, I am the greatest hitter in the world. He throws it up the third time and he swings and he misses. He said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. <laughs> there, there you go. I love that. I love that. Nothing changed but his perception. And I right. perceive all those hardships to be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Because, buddy, when I when after the comedy team broke up, we were as as you pointed out, I was a we were America's first black and white comedy team. And and there were there were no comedy clubs in those days. It was uh, uh you know during 1969 to 1975, we toured the north and the south. Uh, all black clubs in the north and the south, what they affectionately call the Chitlin Circuit, all white neck clubs, you know, where, where I would be the only, Tim would be the only black guy within five miles, and we work in all black area, I'd be the only white guy, you know, the hardships, the dues we paid in those days. And then the team split up and broke my heart. I didn't want that to happen. I thought the team was my whole life at that time. And when the team split up and I went out on my own, I ended up, I had a wife and three kids. I'm hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard. My wife and family were in Chicago. I'm ended up sleeping in an old Nash Rambler, a broken down car that was up on blocks. Uh, the front seat came down. I stayed in that car 30 days, hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard, begging to work for free every night at the comedy store. And, and But I wouldn't give up. And I, I, I believed in my dream. I believed that this is what I was supposed to be, a stand-up comedian. And, and, and again, that hardship of my childhood, you know, that work ethic of my childhood, don't give up. Keep getting back up again, you know. And, uh, you know, so... Yeah, that was a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It was a great answer. Um, I want to, I want to piggyback on uh, the comedy store because uh, I was reading. Yeah, it said like you you begged to be on stage. What was that process really like? Like because you were you said you were sleeping in your car. Like were you just going up to the manager or whatever? Like please let me get on. Please let me get on. Because I'm guessing there's obviously got to be more details into like that story and you getting on stage. Let me tell you, it, it, go back to 1975 in America. Now you guys can't go back to that. But <laughs> Great year. In 1975 in America, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh yeah, you ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. It was the show to do. One appearance on that show, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. One appearance is, Whole life changed. Johnny Carson left New York in 1972 and brought The Tonight Show out to Burbank, California. So the comedy store was the only game in town in those days. There was no improvisation, no laugh factory, none of the other clubs, just the comedy store. And people were getting discovered every single night at the comedy store. The energy was unbelievable. I mean, the, 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 the talent coordinators were coming, you know, from all over because comedy became the rock and roll of the 70s, you know. 
so to get onto the comedy show was very, very important. If Mitzi Shore didn't like you, it was back to Toledo, pal. It was back to Harvey. <laughs> I mean, because there was no other game in town. So you had to get on there to to get to the audition for the comedy show was m- almost as uh, tense as the first appearance on The Tonight Show. You know, so I would go there every night. You could sign up. You'd wait. I'd go there on, and mostly Monday nights in those days, but I would go there every night and, and just trying to get on. After about a month, I finally got on one night and I had to do like five to seven minutes in front of Mitzi. And fortunately, I got over. And when I came off, she said, well, I can see you have some stage presence and you've been around. Uh, we'll find a spot for you. And then I said to her, because I had started the first comedy club in Chicago, a place called Late Pub. There were no comedy clubs in Chicago. And I convinced an owner there of a, of a nightclub, a, a restaurant, could we start a comedy room there? So I had MC there. So I said to her, I could also MC if you need an MC. She said, well, yeah, yeah, well, that's something. Because a lot of guys didn't want to MC, but I, I knew that I could, you know, you could get up, open, do a few jokes, do your little set, then you could bring up the other acts. But each act you dismissed, you could do maybe another joke while you set up the next act. So it gave me more stage time. Anyhow, that all worked out. And and uh, that that a that that got me going, you know, uh, and, until I became a regular, and then I became one of the, at one time one of the stars of the comedy store. I was opening, I was working every night with all these unknown comedians: David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams, Gallagher, Michael Keaton. The girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger, you know, uh, wow. working with Elaine Boozer. These are this was the show every night. I don't know whatever happened to those people, but I'm on the show with you. I'm on. This is you, not untied. This is untied. Um, there, uh, so being at the, I was going to ask, uh, I, you probably saw like all of, you know, those people come through and go and, you know, well, I'm seeing there, uh, with, um, so like Michael Keaton, I mean, even him, it was, I felt like that was crazy. Cause like, I saw some old clips of him doing stuff. I'm like, he's a phenomenal comedian. And then I didn't even know that. Cause like, I grew up knowing him as Batman, That's you know, true. like. So I was like, oh, that's Batman. And then I'm like, Batman did stand up before he was Batman. And it like he had that Bazooka Joe joke that just I couldn't I would butcher it, but he's kills. And like uh, things like that. I was like, wow. I'm like, you got to sit and you had a front row seat through all of these people who are your peers that, you know, you just you were like watching like legends be made by Mitzi Shore. I mean, it was it was it was an incredible time. You know, and I, I broke out before the other guys. I did the Tonight Show before Jay and before Dave. And, and in fact, they, they talk about it all the time when they talk about me, that they were in the kitchen at the comedy store watching my first appearance on the Tonight Show. And, and, um, uh, and, and so I, I broke out first, but I would always go back there whenever, you know, I was working Vegas. Stop. Let, me, let me digress. When I first got on the Tonight Show, I, I, I just hustled the talent coordinators as much as I could to come and see me. I didn't have a manager in those days, but I had been a salesman. I sold life insurance at one time in my life and I knew how to sell. So I sold Craig Tennis uh, and another guy named Paul Black. They were the talent coordinators of the Tonight Show to come and see me. It took a long time, but I finally got them to come and see me. And the night they came to see me, I was auditioning with a comedy team named uh, Baum and Eston. Uh, Bruce later became Bruce Baby Baum Eston. And, and, and Larry Eston uh, uh, was a writer on Cheers later on. They were a comedy team and a new kid named Billy Crystal. I don't know what happened to Billy, but uh, if you find him, try to get him on the show and help <laughs> up his career. But nonetheless, that night, 
I had to go on in front of about 20 people and and make this guy laugh. And it, it worked. He got me on The Tonight Show. I, I He said, you're on next week. Uh, I went there and I got bumped. Uh, you know, I got makeup. Uh, they brought me down to the green room and they, ready to bring me on. They said, we ran out of time. Come back next week. I came back next week. You know, you don't eat for another week, you know, and you fret and worry. 26 million people watch that show. One wow. appearance on that show could launch your career. 26 million people watch that show. Now, the second time I get there, they put me in makeup up to the, my dressing room, back down to the green room. We ran out of time. Come back next week. That's the third week. I did three weeks in a row. The fourth week I go there. By this time, everybody back home didn't believe I was ever going to be on the Tonight Show, you know. Uh, but by, by this time, I'm, I'm sitting in makeup, and the producer came in, Fred Dakota, he said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. Now you get, you get a, a lump in your throat, you know, the size of a grapefruit, you know. And uh, and now they, they, they come and get me out of the green room, and they take me to that long walk. I'm standing behind that curtain. And like I say, 26 million people watch that show. The music is playing Doc Severinsen's in commercial break. They're in commercial, so Doc Severinsen's playing music. And when the music stops, you're walking out. So I'm back there. The coordinator leaves you alone. You're all alone. And now I'm thinking, I can't remember my first line. What's my first joke? <laughs> now, now I'm talking to God one-on-one. -on -one. Oh, God, you brought me this far. Don't let me. Please stay with me right now. Uh, now that if I bomb, you, you know, and I don't know who watched that show. Every coordinator watched that show. Vegas buyers watched that show. Singers. All the singers who wanted a, a clean comedian to open for them, singers in our industry were watching that show. And my mother had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois, watching If I Bomb, I Can't Even Go Back Home. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, I'm, the curtain, the music stops and my heart stops. And I hear Johnny say, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Will you welcome, please, Tom Dreesen. Now, that one line. I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. He set the tone, yeah. you know. Yeah. This guy's coming out for his first time. They open up that curtain. You walk out. You can't see the audience. Bright lights hit you. You know, there's a spot on the floor you got hit at a green tape mark. You hit that spot. You can't see the audience. They're applauding. And you get that first joke out. And it got a laugh. And then you did the second joke. And it got a laugh. And I did the third joke. And it got a laugh. And the fourth joke, I heard Johnny and Ed McMahon laughing behind me. Now I get applause. I end up getting eight applause. I, I finished with, I said, you've been a wonderful audience. This has been my first appearance on The Tonight Show. And show business is a tough life. So if you like me, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, <laughs> light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I say goodnight. I walk out. I go through the curtain. And the coordinator, come, Craig Tennis, come running around the corner. He said, go back. Go back. Johnny wants you back. Go back. I said, go back and sit by Johnny. He said, don't go back and sit by Johnny. Just go back. You know, so I go back to the curtain for a second bow. And Johnny gave me that little circle that he always did, you know, when he scored. And I never stopped working from that moment. I ended up doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. Uh, after that, I was doing Dinosaur, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I was doing $20,000 Pyramid Match Game. I was doing sitcoms as acting. You know, uh, I was the only white comedian ever to do Soul Train because I later did an album in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. Well, um, also, I, I'm sorry, Shani, but also I started appearing with the Sammy Davis Jr. saw me, took me on the road. 
I, 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 the, the singers, uh, Mac Davis, Tony Orlando and Don, James Darren, Frankie Avalon, uh, Gladys Knight, the Pips, Natalie Cole. They were all asking me to come and tour with them because they wanted a comedian that wouldn't offend their, their audiences or family audience. In those days, you, there was no cable television. You couldn't say damn or hell on stage, you know. So right. uh, I was I was I was working so much at one time I was on an airplane heading west and I looked out in the window. I saw myself on a plane going east, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, I got a question. So sure. from from your start or your days in Chicago to then begging to be uh, on stage at the comedy store, then to finally your first appearance at, uh, on Carson. Like, did it hit you that like your perception of yourself, like you're like, I finally did it. Or was it like, well, I'm curious at that moment where it was like defining like a huge sigh of relief, like, holy hell, like I'm, I'm here. I did it. Like when the perception became a reality for you. Well, obviously after that first appearance on the Tonight Show that you scored there, you know, because a lot of people didn't, that was a real, uh, a real like, uh, moment a revelation that that hey i had arrived i arrived in the business but all of a sudden there's a great pressure that comes afterward that and now what yeah you, you know a lot of guys yeah a lot of guys could come up with two or three tonight shows but could you come up with 10 tonight shows or 20 tonight shows or, you know keep doing it keep coming up with new material dick cabot years ago wrote a very funny uh uh thing about he was working at mr kelly's in chicago as a new comedian and that opening night and i've been there i opened at mr kelly's all the in those days all the press was a variety hollywood reporter the chicago tribune the chicago daily news the chicago sun times um the herald american all the critics were in that room and so you score you got over now you're in your dressing room and you say i did it man i did it i scored i did it i got it and a little while later you're knock 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 Mr. Dreesen, five minutes, you go, oh, shit, I got to do it again. <laughs> oh, man. All I did was impress that audience that night. Okay, now you got to do it again. Wow. That's what happens to you when, you're, when, you, when you get out of this. You realize that it's, it's not a 10K. You know, it's, it's a 54-mile relay. It's a long run, and you got to keep that work ethic going, and you got to keep reinventing yourself with different kind of material and new material. But you know, again, the exhilaration of that night, it's hard to describe when I came off that stage, you know, that everything that I had worked for for all those years was that for that moment. There's a, there's a song that I never forget that a girl named Dana Winter sings it, but so did Whitney Houston. <clears throat> One moment in time. And when you're standing behind that curtain, that all of my dreams are a heartbeat away. You know, if you can answer that one moment in time, and this is that athletes talk about it. They call it seize the moment. There's sometimes a, a baseball player. He's hitting 142. He's going back to the minors. He may never play again. Somebody got injured. Somebody else got injured. And all of a sudden, he's up with bases loaded. And that's that moment he has to seize. And if he seizes that moment, his life is going to change forever. And that's what happens behind that curtain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Um, re really quick before we get too far away from the comedy store, I wanted I you actually supported the strike uh, when they weren't paying the comedians. Uh, what was that? What was that like? The environment of like being there during that time is something that they now talk about in documentaries, and you're like, mm, I, that was my life. I was there. 
So what I, happened, every time I'd come back off the road, I would go to the comedy store, you know, and, and keep working on new material for the Tonight Show, for all the other shows I was doing. So as soon as I'd come out touring with Sammy Davis or whoever I was touring with, as soon as I came off, I'd call the comedy store and, and call in for times. And whenever you went to the comedy store, you went to the original room, what they call it, the original room, about 118 people in that room. And you said, now, in the meantime, Mitchie had bought another section of that building out. Uh, that, that place used to be Ciro's, a, a, a very famous place in Hollywood many years ago. Uh, but uh, now a guy named um, Art LeBeau was running a 50s club in there, and Mitchie bought him out. So she had a 400-seater there. And Rodney Dangerfield would appear there and get the door. Jackie Mason would get the door. You know, if they charged 30 bucks at the door, 400 seats, they made themselves 12,000 for the night, you know, something like that. And she took the drinks and liquor, you know. So um, it was over 400 seats. So, but that was for those people. When I came off the road one time, I signed up and they said, I walked into the original. I said, oh, Tom, you're in the main room. I said, I'm in the main room. They said, yeah. I said, well, I go over to the main room and on stage was David Letterman, Jay Leno. Elaine Boozler, Robin Williams, and me, and and Jay, Jay Leno. That was a night, you know. Uh, and I'm on stage, and I'm thinking, wow, I feel like I'm back in Vegas in this big room. But I didn't think much of it. Uh, and afterward, everybody would go over to a restaurant called Cantor's, and all the comics would hang out. As you know, comics love to hang out till the wee hours in the morning. But so they were telling stories and everything. And in comes Jay Leno, and he's saying, man, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. He said, we filled that room. Maybe it took five of us. But we filled that room as much as any headliner done, and we get nothing. This is bullshit. We should be getting paid. Now, they start talking about, I'm making money. By the time I'm making six figures a year, I'm doing great. But they're my friends, and I'm listening right. to them. And they decide they're going to have a meeting about a strike. So, uh, not about a strike. They weren't talking about a meeting about getting paid. So, they go to the meeting, and I go to the meeting because they're my friends. I was home off the road, and all they did, they were arguing and going back and forth. and was so if you've ever been in a room with 120 comedians, it's, it's, it was madness, you know. But all they decided at that meeting was they were going to have another meeting. So I go to the second meeting, and it's just as bad. They're all talking. And finally, I had been in the JCs. That's how I met Tim Reed. I was in the Junior Chamber of Commerce. I knew how to conduct a meeting. I knew Robert's Rules of Order and how to chair a meeting. So I got up, and I said, chairing the meeting. I said, let, let me get this organized. And I said, chairing the meeting. Okay, hold your point. Hold your point. Hold on, Gallagher. Hold on, hold on. Jay Leno, Jay, take the floor, Jay, Jay, make your point. Okay, let's put that in the form of a motion. And I said, organizing them. When you organize those young, brilliant minds, they were a force to be reckoned with. You know, and, and I, they got organized. And I finally went to Mitzi and I told her the comedians want to get paid. And there was under no circumstances was she ever going to pay the comedians. I begged her. I talked to her. I told her why. I, one night I went over to her home with Paul Mooney, with George Miller and Tim Thomerson. And we stayed up there for like six hours and could not convince her to pay the comedians. Wow. I finally went to her one night. I, I couldn't sleep all night long, and I woke up in the middle of the night. I had this idea. I went to her office in the morning. I said, Mitzi, I got it. You're charging $5 at the door. Charge $6 at the door. Let the comedians have that $1. If 200 people show up, they split 200 bucks. If, if 500 people, they split 500. If 50 people, the comedians of night split 50 bucks. She said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. They're not ready to be paid. Now, that's when I... I was numb because I thought it was about money. If it was about money, we could resolve this issue. It was about control. When you when you pay the the, the, uh, the, the you know the slave, the slave isn't a slave anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a terrible analogy. But uh, my point was, 
that that I was numb. Now I realized this is, I went back and told the community, she's not going to pay. They decide they want to go on strike. The last thing I want to do is get involved in a strike. I had all, I, I had $50,000 of work coming up just with Sammy Davis Jr. with about five or six dates that I was going out on the road with them. Anyhow, long story short, they voted on it. I called Mitchie one more time. I said, please, Mitchie, the comedians want to go on strike. If, would you mind paying him? Can I swear on this show? Yes, yeah, sir. Say whatever okay. you want. <laughs> okay, well, this is her answer. I, there were all the people at my house. She said, not one red fucking cent. So Ooh. I said to the comedians, I said, but she's not going to pay. And they all said, strike. That night they went on strike. Now, we had committees. I helped set a committee. Steve Bluestein was in charge of publicity. He got all ABC, NBC, CBS. He got everybody out there all you know, on that night of the strike. And it became news coast to coast worldwide in England and all over wherever there was comedy rooms, this place, you know, now I became like Jimmy Hoffa, you know, I, I really didn't <laughs> want to do this, you know, uh, and, and now they voted, they, the, the, the comedian said, we should not have all the comedians talking to the media. It will discombobulate our, our, our issue. Let's vote for one person. And Daddy Archibald said, I've let Tom Dreesen do it. I was more like the senior comedian. So I became the spokesperson for them. I thought it would be over and it would have been over in 24 hours if all the comedians stayed united. 18 comedians, most of the comedians stayed united, 18 comedians, 18 guys and one girl, 19 people crossed the picket line. And because they they weren't big names at the time or anything, but when they crossed the picket line, they kept the place open. Had they not done that, it would have been over in 24 hours. But it lasted eight weeks and it got ugly and, and, and arguments and fights and and just it just really got ugly. And um, uh, after about eight weeks, I, I had just about had it. I, I, I turned down all the work with Sammy and I told Sammy what I was doing. He said, I understand, Tom, it's the right thing to do. But don't worry, you'll have a job with me when this is over. But I'm thinking it's going to be a week or two. I didn't know it was going to last forever. And. And I'm going to digress for a minute. I'm a street guy. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. I grew up on the streets. When I got into a fight, I've been beat. But once the fight started, I want to win. And I don't quit. In sports, in every sport I ever played, basketball, football, baseball, once the game starts, I want to win. You know, I boxed when I was in the service. Once the fight started, I wanted to win. And, and, that, and that's what's happening here. I wasn't going to give up. Uh, and now after about eight weeks, Screen Actors Guild wanted me to speak to their membership and uh, about this issue because it was on all the papers and everything. And they they asked for the comedy sort to send over Mitzi's argument and I would debate them. Me and, and a guy named uh, Mark Lanau and his uh, wife, Joanne, we represented our side and, the, uh, and a guy named Biff Maynard and Danny Mora represented a comedy store. So we got up to debate. And Biff Maynard, um, God rest his soul, a big tough guy, been in prison, but he was a comedian too. <laughs> big tough guy. But anyhow, he uh, he he got up, and I'm, I'm going to try to make this short. But all during the strike, after about four weeks into the strike, uh, Mitzi decided that she would she called me and said, "I'll pay you on weekends, on Fridays and Saturdays, but Monday through Sunday, Monday through, through Thursday and Sunday." I don't pay anything to comedians. Well, I took that offer back to the comedian saying, I would take it. I think it's a great idea. They said, no, anytime you have a cover charge, we think you should pay the comedians anytime they perform. So I told them, I said, they want to be paid every time you have a cover charge. And those days they thought cover charge meant cover the cost of entertainment. 
and and which we found out later it didn't, but nonetheless. Uh, so now while we were on strike, she started paying those who crossed the picket line $25 on Friday night and $25 on Saturday night. So Biff Maynard gets up and the first thing he says to this room full of artists, actors, he said, comedians are artists and artists don't need to be paid for their art. Well, he was talking to a room full of artists that didn't go over very big. <laughs> and then he, he, uh, he just was going on and on about comedians shouldn't be paid. I got up and I said, we've been walking this picket line for almost eight weeks. In the meantime, Mitzi decided to pay on weekends because of our efforts. This man that just got up here worked Friday and Saturday night and he made $50. Do you know what he did with that $50? Tonight he put, went and had dinner at a restaurant and then he put gas in his car to drive over here and tell you that you shouldn't pay us. You know, so yeah. Uh, yeah. it got like a standing ovation. <laughs> and, and afterward, the president of Screen Actors Guild said to me and Biff, we're going to take a full page ad out in Variety and the Hollywood Reporter telling everybody in, and actors in our guild not to go to the comedy store to honor that picket line because they're not paying you. I go back to the comedy store. Everybody's pick, walking the picket line. And I, as I get out of the car, I was saying, hey, well, what happened? I'm telling them that what Screen Actors Guild is going to do. Meanwhile, in the driveway by the comedy store, if you know the comedy store, there's a little driveway there. Mitzi had gotten an injunction that we couldn't pick it across that, that parking, uh, that, that driveway. Which was, she was right. We shouldn't be blocking the driveway. So I see Biff Maynard facing his car east, racing the engine, rom, rom, rom on Sunset Boulevard. And cars are going west, so he can't pull in there yet. And I look, and a couple of the comedians are standing in the driveway, and I holler, get out of there. Get out of the driveway. Get out. And I hear, car screeching, goes in, and I hear, boom. And he goes to the back of the comedy store, and Jay Leno is laying on the ground. And the girls start crying and screaming. He hit Jay. He hit Jay. He hit Jay. Now, I'm yelling, call an ambulance. We didn't have cell phones in those days, you know. I'd yell, call an ambulance. But at that point, guys, I am at my breaking point. I can't take it anymore. I eight weeks of this fucking bullshit, arguing about paying these comedians. It's a minimal amount. I'm I'm at my breaking point. When Biff gets out of that car, I'm going to break his fucking jaw. Now, he was nobody to fool with. He was a big, tough guy. But I, at that point, I had it. I just had it with all this bullshit. I kneeled down to see how Jay's doing. And he opened one eye and he winked at me. And he went back like he was out again. <laughs> I said, you son of a bitch. What happened was he didn't get hit. When the car went by, he hit the car with the side of his hand as hard as he could. Boom! And he fell down. Now, he's laying there like he's dead. <laughs> Now, Biff comes running out of the car and everybody's saying, you hit Jay. You, he said, no, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. You're son of a... Now, we hear woo, 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 sirens coming, ambulance. Now, the ambulance comes and they're going to take Jay away, but Jay didn't want to go. He said, oh, I'm okay. I think. They, but they can't release you. They have to take you to a hospital. Only the hospital can release you. You know, so they haul Jay off in the ambulance, you know. A few moments later, I think it was Argus Hamilton came outside. He said, Tom, Mitzi wants to talk to you. I went inside. She said, let's settle this right now once and for all. And we got our attorney there, a guy named Ken Browning that Dave Letterman recommended to us. It was his lawyer. And we got we settled it that night. And uh, and the tragedy of that is, and then I'll end this, was after about three weeks, the comics were all going back. I gave a farewell speech to all of them and said, I'm done. I'm, I'm finished. I wish you all the best, but I got to go back to work and everything. 
And we came outside. I, I had to catch a plane that day. My ex-wife was with me. What was her name again? Oh, yeah, plaintiff. But I had an audition to go to. They wanted me to host a show called Real People. I didn't want to do that, but I, I, but I had to meet with the guy, George Slaughter. And then I had to catch a plane. So as I'm leaving, all these comics are getting around me, talking to me. And one was Steve Lebetkin, uh, a wonderful young comedian that, um, uh, who walked the picket line with us. And they're all trying to talk to me. And my wife kept saying, we got to go. You got to catch a plane. And Lebetkin said, Tommy, please don't leave the group. If you leave the group, she'll retaliate. You know, I, would, I said, no, it's in the contract. She can't do that. We put in the contract. Anybody who walked the picket line, you can't retaliate against. He said, Tom, I've called in three weeks in a row. She won't give me any time slots. I said, oh, Steve, man. she will. She'll give you time slots. Don't worry about it. And he looked so forlorn. And I said to him, Steve. Uh, he, uh, my wife kept saying, we got to go. I finally grabbed him by the shoulders. I said, Steve, I won't go back to you go back. I give you my word. I won't go back to you go back. He said, all right, all right. Now I go and I end up, I'm working in Lake Tahoe with Sammy Davis Jr. Another week goes by. Steve Lebeckin called in for times again and she turned him down. I'm ready to go on stage one night and Jay Leno calls me in my dressing room. He said, Tom, Steve Lebeckin committed suicide. He went to the top of the Continental Hyatt House and he wrote a suicide note. It was next to the comedy store, the, the, the Continental Hyatt House. He wrote a suicide note. My name is Steve Lebetkin. I used to work at the comedy store. And he jumped off the top of the building and landed on the ramp next to the comedy store. And, and, and of course, died. And, uh, and, and I was, as Jay thought I had just gotten off stage. He didn't know I had to go on stage. That was the hardest wow. show. The hardest show I ever had to do in my life that night. Because I started thinking... Had I never got involved in this bullshit, this stupid bullshit about paying comedians something, had I not gotten involved, maybe that kid would still be alive. I started putting it on me, but uh, but it, it wasn't anybody's fault. He was forlorn, you know. I'll tell you something strange. Every year after, on the anniversary of his death for two years, somebody, everybody thought it was his girlfriend. They laid a dummy on the ramp where he landed with a sign around its neck saying, my name is Steve Lebetkin. I used to work at the comedy store. They did it two years in a row. A lot of people thought it was his girlfriend. No one knew who was doing it, you know. But in fact, there's a book written about it called I'm Dying Up Here, which is a double entendre. It's by William Needlesheeter. It's a double entendre because comedians, when we, we don't do well, you know, you say, I died last night. You know, I, I'm dying up here. And of course, Steve Lebetkin committed suicide. So that's all in the book. Anyhow, that was the end of that story. It's over. I never went back to the comedy store for over 40 years. I kept my word to Steve Lebeckin that I wouldn't go back. But then Mike Binder got a hold of me, one of the comics who was with us in those days. He actually crossed the picket line, but he later came back to apologize and said that he, he, wasn't, he didn't do right. And he wished he would have stayed with us. He's, he was directing and producing the comedy store special that I think you guys may have seen. It was uh, five episodes. Yeah. And so he, he asked me, would I come back? just for one show uh, that he could film me. And I did. He, and, and, and I'm glad I did. And yeah, by the way, Mitzi, Mitzi's son, Peter Shore, called me and asked me to come back to him. So. Wow. Wow. So, man, what a story. First of all, rest in peace to Steve Lebeckin. Second of all, you deserve a Nobel Peace Prize for the amount of <laughs> shit you put up with at the comedy store because that's crazy. Third, the... In, while that was all going on, you never thought about changing careers to be a divorce lawyer because it's pretty much like <laughs> what you did the whole time. Well, you know, you, you, I have to tell you, 
the first week, all the comedians were gung-ho. Hey, man, we're going to do this. But after she dug in and people crossed the picket line, a lot of those comedians started getting very, very nervous. Are we ever going to? This was, again, it was a great showcase club. The improv had just started up at that time. And, and so, um, you know, but, but it, and, and there's another story in there that Mitzi called her loyalists together for a meeting one night. We had a waitress there that was our, she was our spy. You know, she, yeah, she, she was an undercover agent of a, she would come to us and tell us all the things that they talked about at these private meetings. And uh, she, she, what happened was one night, Mitzi said, the comedians are going to go on strike. And Biff Maynard and Ollie Joe Prater were in the back of the room. And they said, comedians won't go on strike. They need a place to work. And Mitzi said, they may go over to the improvisation. And uh, Ali Joe Prater said, what if there was no improvisation? And two days later, somebody threw a Molotov cocktail on top of the roof of the improv and burned it down. Oh, you know, oh and, my gosh. And, and we all know who did that, you know. But Bud Friedman came to me and he said, Tom, if you comedians go on strike, I need to rebuild my place. We could still work in the front of the improv. The whole back burned down. But they could still set up a small stage. And he said, I, 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 I can you? Don't please don't go on strike on me. I said, but the comedians don't want to go on strike. Will you sign a memo that you will pay the comedians once you get rebuilt? That you will sit down and and, and discuss a, a fair price. He said absolutely, and he signed the memo. And so we, when we we're walking the picket line, we'd send people over there to work over there. You know, um, when customers would come up, we'd say, "Please, can you honor our picket line?" But we were, we're all working at the improv later on, and. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, Biff Maynard, just before he died, admitted to me what really went down. You know, uh, they, they, people say today, oh, it didn't, it didn't happen that way. Bullshit. I know it happened. <laughs> uh, you know. But it was, it was, a, it was a, a, a crazy time. I have to tell you, when I look back over my life, I, I think back of that era. And, and I'm, I'm proud of what those kids did. Because I'll tell you something else. Comedy clubs are just starting. What, Keep this in mind. When I started in children's, there were no comedy clubs in America. And a few years wow. later, there were 550. Tulsa, Oklahoma had three in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So there were comedy clubs all over the country. And what they were doing was paying the comedians either nothing or very little. Uh, and, and if they say they had a good comedian come the weekend, they might give them $100 for the whole weekend. Once we won the strike, they all had to fall in line and pay a little bit more because a comedian could stay in LA, work the comedy store and the right. improv and go out for commercials, audition for shows and stuff and stay in LA and, and, and survive. So all across the country, those comedy clubs had to raise their pay. The improvisation in New York, Bud's wife who won it uh, in a, in a, in a uh, divorce, she won the club and she told me, she said, Tom, we, we, once you guys won in LA, the comedians in New York wanted to be paid. I sat down with them, we negotiated and we got it done. Uh, in London, England, we got uh, people from London, England, sent us letters thanking us, comedians, that they start paying in London. So it had worldwide ramifications for the comedians. So, yeah, you literally were the beginning of just of a movement for comedians. Yeah, I, I, I remember one time, uh, it was so funny, a young kid, a buddy of mine was with me, and a young kid walked up to me outside the improvisation. It's a new kid from Baltimore, a comedian. He's a pretty funny kid, too. And he walked up to me and said, hey, Tom Dreesen, somebody told me when you guys started out, you worked for free. You worked for, you went on stages for free. I said, yeah. He said, boy, first day I ever went on stage, I got paid. I said, 
Congratulations. <laughs> you should have said you're, you're welcome. welcome. That yeah. was me. Yeah, you should have said you're welcome. But which uh, which comedy club did you say that was that you went and met with uh, after she got the club and the divorce? Uh, it was Silver Friedman, Bud Friedman's wife. She, she went in the divorce. She got the New York improv. You know, oh, okay. But but kept the Hollywood improv, you know. Because and that's how. Would, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, because that's I was gonna say, isn't that how Mitzi got the comedy store? She got it in her divorce. Yes, Sammy Shore, her husband, owned it. But I have to say this: Mitzi was brilliant, and I love Mitzi. I and, and, and uh, I can't tell you how it hurt me that we had these back and forth discussions because I thought the world of her. By the way, she gave me that shot. If, 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 if Mitzi, if I didn't get on the comedy show, I probably would never got on the Tonight Show. I never forgot that. I used to do radio interviews. Mitzi was very shy, and her publicist would ask me to do radio interviews for the comedy show, and I'd take Mitzi with me because she was shy about speaking, but if I was with her, you know. But um, um, uh, her, her husband, Sammy, he had a comedy room there, the comedy store, but anybody could get up and do an hour. You could do 40 minutes. It, it was very disorganized, but Mitzi turned it into a Ford assembly line. She, you know, if, if, when I started on show business, if you'd have told me, hey, Tom, you're going to work tonight, but you're going to follow five comedians. I said, Shh, I ain't following five comedians. <laughs> no one follows five comedians. Now you're following 18 comedians at the comedy store. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, she came up with that brilliant idea. Each comic do 15 minutes or so, you know, and weekends maybe do 20. But she'd do like two, three different shows. And, and it worked. It was an assembly line and it worked. You know, she was the genius behind all that. So, Tom, speaking of the comedy store, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were on the basketball team and a softball team there, and then in the Navy you boxed, and then later on you golfed. Did I get that time right, timeline right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I played, I played football. I played basketball on all black basketball team when I was growing up. I, I, I did used to do routines about it. You know, I was the only white kid on all black basketball team. They nicknamed me Spot. You know. I said, <laughs> I said, 14, 14 black guys in me. I didn't get in one game for three years. They finally put me in one afternoon, and no one would pass me the ball. They claimed they couldn't see me in the daytime. <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, I was curious, with the, the comedians uh, that you played with at the comedy store, were any of them, like, you were just surprised by their athleticism? And you're like, holy hell, I'm glad you're on my team. Oh, well, we, we, the comedy store basketball, I went to Mitzi at, when I was at the comedy store, and I wanted to start a team called the Comedy Store Bombers. And she bought uniforms for us, you know, and, and we played. We had like 17 games one year. We had a comedy team called Roger and Roger, Roger Peltz and Roger Bear. Roger Peltz played at University of Louisiana or something like that. Uh, was No, University of Kentucky, I think it was. He was a center, big, tall guy. Um, we uh, Paul Mooney's sons, Daryl and Dwayne Mooney, were a comedy team, and they were real good point guards. The only problem was they only passed the ball to each other, you know, if we, <laughs> if we wanted to. If we wanted the ball, we had to steal it from the Mooney twins, you know. Uh, but but uh, but uh, I, I I was usually a guard, but I played forward with Johnny Witherspoon. Johnny was a real good basketball player. We played a lot of one-on-one -on -one basketball. Dave Letterman was a forward, and, and and Dave was a very good basketball player. He would always poo-poo it that he was, but he was a good basketball player. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Walker, Jimmy Walker at that time was a good, a good basketball player. Uh, Daryl Igas. We had um, I'm, I'm leaving out some guys, but Lou Deck and and and. Uh, we had a lot, a lot of good, good basketball players. Well, and then, I mean, later on uh, at the Bob Hope Classic, I saw you played with Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Peter Jacobson, and John Daly. And then I also saw that you actually played with Tiger Woods. But I'm very curious, 
because I I literally like just got into golf. I know I know a handful of names. I'm like not a huge golf uh, nerd, I guess, as you would say, but I literally just started playing it with my brother. It's super fun. But I know who John Daly is. And I know that John Daly is a partier to say the least. So I was curious if you had any uh, stories with John Daly while golfing with him. He was my partner in the AT&T. I'll get back to John Daly in a minute. I, I caddied as a boy, so I love golf. I grew up I grew up in the streets. Going to a golf course was a whole new world for me. When I was growing up, I always thought I wanted to be own a tavern because that's where my father spent all of his money. I, I, I you know, when I went to caddy at Ravislow, where I caddied at this club, that the, they they sent ca- uh, two kids to college every year on the Evans scholarship. Um, I was in this environment I had never been before. I was caddying for lawyers and doctors and Mr. Florsheim, very wealthy people, and they treated me not like a, a, a slave or something. They treated me like a son, and and they. I, I just was a whole new world. All of a sudden, after a few years, I started dreaming, maybe I could be more than just a tavern owner. That's why I understand when young kids in the ghetto want to grow up to be a pimp or a drug pusher, because that's the only person they've ever seen with a lot of money and success. They've never been outside that environment. So it made sense to me. You know? So I love golf, but I didn't play it for years. I went in the military, didn't play for years. I got married when I came out of the service, had a wife, three kids. I'm working construction. I'm the, you know, my buddies would say, you want to play golf on Sunday? I, yeah. Well, we're teeing off at 630. We get up at five. I, oh, I ain't doing that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, so now when I'm touring with Sammy Davis Jr., Sammy had a golf tournament called the Sammy Davis Jr. Pro-Am in Hartford, Connecticut. And Ping was his sponsor, uh, the manufacturer of Ping. You know? And I, I one day was on the golf course with him, just riding around the cart. He had a cart that was like a, 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 a apartment on wheels. It had a bar, it had a television set, it, you know, and I'm just riding around with him. But I was swinging one of his clubs. He said, Tommy, you got a good swing. Do you, you golf? I said, I played when I was a kid. He ended up buying me a set of ping woods and irons and had them in my dressing room as a gift, you know. And I and, and then Bob Hope invited me to the Bob Hope Classic. He saw me on the Tonight Show one night and invited me. And I got out on that first tee. And there's like 8,000 people lining up the fairway and everything. And the guy's announcing, ladies and gentlemen, now on the tee, Mr. Tom, he said, my knees were shaking. <laughs> what am I, what am I doing? You know, but so I, I started taking the game serious. And and then I played in the Bob Hope Classic for years and years and years. I later became the master of ceremonies for the Bob Hope Classic. I played in the Frank Sinatra Celebrity Invitational. I was a master of ceremonies for 30 years and played in that every year. Then I also was on a tour. They, there was a tour called the Celebrity Players Tour. It was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business wow. people that were 10 handicap or below. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Smith, Mario Lemieux, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan. We had 42 Hall of Famers. <laughs> wow. Show business, show business, it was me. It was Matt Lauer, Brian Gumbel, Smokey Robinson, Eddie Marinaro, Frankie Avalon. You know, show business people. I was the only comedian on that tour. We did 12 cities a year, and they paid you. You know, Rick Roden won over $2 million on our tour, a former pitcher in baseball. Oh, and, my God. So I, I always said I was the leading money winner on the, uh, I was a leading money winner among stand-up comedians on the Celebrity Players Tour. <laughs> and they say, well, how many are there? I said, I'm the only comedian right. on the Celebrity Players Tour. But to get back before I get to John Daly, during that time, I'm flying with Frank Sinatra all over the world in his private jet, in his private jet doing shows in, you know, in front of 20,000 seat arenas and living in Frank Sinatra's world. And when I wasn't doing that, I was playing golf with all these athletes. If somebody would have told me when I was a little boy on my hands and knees, shining shoes and bars, 
one day, you hear that guy in the jukebox? Come fly with me. You're going to be flying with him all over the world and gracing the same stage with him. And you're going to get inside an arena and you're going to compete with the greatest athletes who ever lived in your lifetime. I'd have said that's impossible. That's absolutely impossible. But here I was doing just that. So every time they came to me with a sitcom, I turned it down. Every time they offered. Yeah. Christopher Morty said success is Christopher Morty. The author said success is living the life you want. And I was living the life I wanted. I mean, I was touring with all and with Frank Sinatra. I'm competing with all these great athletes. <laughs> it was it was just that cats me out. And John Daly, whenever you go to the AT&T, uh, Clint Eastwood is a good buddy of mine. And he uh, invited me to the AT&T. And I, I became the master of ceremonies for the AT&T and, and did shows every, every uh, year we do it. But they hook you up with a pro. So it's a celebrity and a pro. And, and, and you know, if, if, if I'm out of the hole, if I'm laying six, I, and my pro makes a birdie, we're one under. You know, if I get a shot on this hole, you know, so we, we match the scores, right? John Daly was my partner for like four years. And I always say, this is what John Daly taught me. He once said to me, Tom, 24 cans of beer in a case, 24 hours in a day. Coincidence? I don't think so. Because <laughs> <laughs> that man, that boy could drink. That boy, you know, he's still my friend. He calls me all the time. I mean, and and uh, he's he's still throwing it back. I remember hearing this story. I'm definitely going to mess it up, but uh, he was he was somewhere prepping for a tournament, and Tiger Woods walked by him, and he was like, "Hey, come get a drink." Tiger was like, "I gotta go. I gotta get in the weight room." And then Tiger Tiger gets uh, his workout in, and then he walks past John again at the bar. John's like, "Hey, come get a drink." Tiger's like, "No, I gotta go get my shots in." And then. Uh, eventually they played the next day and Tiger did not perform well when Daly performed amazing. Uh, I think he was like one of the top uh, finishers, but he, Tiger then came over to John and was like, you know what? I might have to start drinking more if, if I'm going to continue to play like that. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah a, 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 but in the long run, Tiger, Tiger went out, but it's right, true about right. John. John. John is just one of those great country boy characters who uh, not only hit a golf ball far, People didn't realize what a great short game he had. He had a great short game. But he's a funny guy. Uh, and, and he'll call me 2 o'clock in the morning. Hey, Dries, Dries, I'm at a bar. And this guy next to me loves Frank Sinatra. And I told him I knew you. He didn't believe I knew you. Dries, tell him a Frank Sinatra story. It's th- John, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get him 6 and catch a plane. No, no, well, you can always get- tell him a story. And, that, and I'll end up doing that. You know? <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh, so... Uh, do you think that you uh, like being in like a, like around that tavern saloon environment, like as a kid, do you think that kind of uh, made it easier to like interact with, you know, like as a young kid going to the comedy store and, you know, kind of starting out doing that and being on the younger side? And it was just do you think it was easier to communicate with the adults and kind of get them to take you seriously because you had that? Like I've been around this scene because I always say, you know, like you said, comedians love to do all their business and stuff in a bar. Like everything takes place in a bar and they got a bar in the comedy club and they got a bar in this. And so all like it just kind of do you think that was played yeah, a part? I, I, I think for me, it, 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 dev- it certainly developed my personality. I was a bartender when I came out of the service in the same bar. My mother had been a bar and had a new owner and I attended bar in two different places. One bar was a lot of couples would come in and the other bar, you served two beers and broke up a fight. Then you served two beers and you broke up a fight, you know, <laughs> doing that all night long. But growing up in, in that environment, um, 
it, I, it, it develops character or or it won't. It would, could destroy your character or it develops your character. It depends on your personality, you know. For, let, let me let me digress from it. 85% of all, this is my humble opinion, 85% of all stand-up comedians I've met in my life are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved, wrecks, total, absolute wrecks. And the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell a joke. I like to think that I'm in the latter, but never trust somebody that tells you they're sane. You know? <laughs> but, but so when you're around comedians, you, you know, I, 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 I don't want to make this dark, but I've known five great stand-up comedians who committed suicide. I know another 20 comedians who destroyed themselves with drugs and alcohol that were funny people, you know. And that's why I give motivation speeches to the comedians when I, I did it in Philadelphia, I did it in New York, I did it in Boston, I did it in, in Chicago and in, in, in L.A. I, I call it, my motivation speech is called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. How to enjoy this wonderful journey as a stand-up comedian. If you're an insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, love-starved wreck, when you're poor and unknown, when you're rich and famous, it doesn't get better, you know. It gets worse because you thought rich and famous was going to take away all that angst that you have. So that's what I talked to them about. I help them develop these, this perception, you know, uh, and, 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 and how to visualize and, and self-talk, what to say when you talk to yourself and then develop a sense of humor, learn to laugh at yourself. One of the things I tell comedians, one of the biggest pitfalls you all comedians have is that you compare yourself to another comedian. Well, I started out with Scotty, and Scotty's doing the, the Fallon show, and, and I was doing it a year before him. You know, I always tell him that uh, there's a, um, a great Hindu proverb that said, there's nothing noble about being superior to another man. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am Amen. I a better son than I was last year? Am I a better father than I was last year? Am I a better comedian than I was last year? Look over your, 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 listen to your tapes. Look over your notes. Have you grown as a, it's your only competition your whole life? And I tell them, I said, I stand in front of you and I tell you I'm a success. I'm a success as a stand-up comedian. And you know what my critics would say? Bullshit. You're a success? You started out with David Letterman. You started out with Jay Leno. They got a billion dollars and 180 cars and 200 motorcycles. And you call yourself a success? I say, yes, because I never compared myself to David Letterman or Jay Leno. I only wanted to be the best Tom Dreesen that I could be. I didn't want to be better than Jay Leno or better than David Letterman. First of all, in comedy, that's all subjective anyhow. Because who makes you laugh? If you're an Ed that makes you laugh, then, you know, she's the funniest person in your world. You know, so comedy is subjective. But learning to enjoy this wonderful journey we're on as stand-up comedians. Guys, you know, I, I don't want to get on a soapbox here. Look, the... The insurance companies of America for eight years went around the world doing the 10 fears of man. What are the 10 fears of man? They did a survey. Death was fourth. Pain was second. Getting up in front of an audience was the number one fear of mankind. If you can get up in front of an audience and you can talk about being a house painter for an hour or a lawyer or a bricklayer for an hour, you're in less than 1% of the population of the world. If you can get up and make people laugh for an hour, you're in less than one millionth of 1% of the population of the world. Do you know how fortunate you are to have this gift? Now, laughter is healing. That's not a theory anymore. It used to be a theory. It's not a theory. 
we've always known that laughter is psychologically uh, deterrent because the brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. It simply can't function two thoughts at the same time. So if you're laughing at a comedian, you're not thinking about your problems. So it's a psychological deterrent. But now, because of Norman Cousins, the man who was the editor of Saturday Review, who was dying of a, of a terminal illness, uh, and, and the doctors told him it was stress, his heart, that he wasn't, didn't have long to live, that, year, that years of stress was causing this heart ailment. He laid in the hospital. He thought of negative input, stress made me ill, then positive input should make me well. So he went out of the hospital and he'd only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candy Camera, Three Stooges, The Marx Brothers. He would listen to comedy albums. He never watched the evening news. He never picked up the evening newspaper. He lived 27 years after he was told he was going to die. Wow. Because of him, UCLA did research on what happens to the human body when it laughs. And when you have this hearty laugh where you laugh so hard and tears are running down your eyes and you go, oh, this sense of well-being, it's because your body's gone through an actual chemical change. So it's not, laughter is not only psychologically deterrent and it's physiologically therapeutic, then comedians are physicians of the soul. So you guys can call me Dr. Dreeson if you want. But. <laughs> Absolutely. I would believe it. Oh, go ahead. But that's my point. I tell comedians, that's who you are. Don't waste that. Don't destroy that brain of yours with drugs and alcohol. Don't do that. If you need drugs and alcohol to get you up on stage, you're not really a true comedian. You know, come from your spirit. Are you nervous? Are you scared? Of course, we all are. You know, you think it's easy to walk out in front of 20,000 people who all came to see Frank? <laughs> you, know, you, think, right. you think I'm whistling Dixie? You know, but but we learn to work under those conditions. You know? So, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, no, that's it. So going back to Letterman, and I, I'm asking this now because I think it's kind of what you just told me and maybe a little bit more. So I'm hoping you can elaborate. He has this quote and it says, Tom was older than, or Tom was older than the rest of us, had more experience. Tom taught me, taught a lot of us what to worry about and what to carry about. Is what he, uh, what I just quoted him on pretty much what you told him and other comedians, I'm guessing? Yeah, Dave, David and I have been friends from the moment I met him. I don't know. And I, I, I tell you, it'll make me tell you a funny story. Yes, I, I was always there for him for advice. But here's a funny story about Dave. When, when I first came, met Dave Letterman, I came off stage at the comedy store and he had just arrived in L.A. He had been a weatherman, in, in, as you know, in Indianapolis. He had an old red pickup truck. He had no money or anything. But it was, I walked up stage and he said to me, I really enjoyed your set, Mr. Dreesen. <laughs> I said, well, thank you very much. I said, what's your name? He said, Dave. I said, oh, hi, Dave. Where are you from? He said, Indianapolis. And I'm such an extrovert. I started talking sports. I said, Indianapolis. What baseball team did you root for when you were growing up? And I said, talking sports, you know. He said, I thought he, I was hoping he'd say the Cubs because I'm a Cub fan, you know. But he says, uh, he said, uh, no, he really kind of for Cincinnati. And I said, oh, I, I'm, I'm so extrovert. I kept taking it to him. <clears throat> Had I known that he was a shy, reclusive kind of guy, I would have respected that. But every time I saw him, hey, Dave, I, and I would take it to him. I would take, and before I realized that he was shy, introverted guy, we were friends. I, I, I went to play racquetball. I taught him how to play racquetball. He ended up beating me later on. It was amazing how, how we took to that game. But, and then basketball. And so we became friends. Now, he calls me a couple months ago. He said, Tom, every time you do an interview, or I do an interview, they'll say, how did you meet Tom? He said, or how did you meet Dave? We always tell the same story. You came off at this comedy store. I complimented you on your material. And we became friends. I said, yeah. He said, well, it's boring. It's a boring story. I said, but it's true. I don't care if it's boring. 
from now on, let's tell people you came off stage at the comedy store. I stole some material from you and you beat the shit out of me in the parking lot. <laughs> I said, now, why would I want to say that? He said, because it's a better story. I said, you got 32 million fans, you know, they'll be chasing me through airports. He said, it's a better story. Now, another couple of weeks go by. He calls me. He said, Tom, do you know the governor of Illinois? I said, I met him, but I don't know him. He said, well, my wife has a friend who her, her girlfriend lives in Chicago. And she's got a grown son that has autism. And these adults with autism, they, they plant corn and tomatoes and lettuce and stuff like that. And then when it comes to fruition, they give it to the homeless. And the state is coming to take that property away. And I wanted to call the governor and, and lobby for him not to do that. I said, well, I don't know him, but I know the Senate majority leader there, the president of the Senate is John Colleton, a friend of mine. Let me call him. So I called John and said, oh, Tom, tell Dave not to worry about that because of statute, this, that, and the other, whatever you're saying. We're going to take care of that. I said, John, do you mind telling Dave that? Because you explained it better than me. If I give Dave your phone number, he said, sure, I'll take his phone call. I said, oh, John, John, when Dave calls you and you tell him you're going to help him, tell him the only reason you're helping him is because Dreesen beat the shit out of him in the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) So got to keep the tail alive. John's a great sport. So he said, okay, he's a great sport. Ten minutes go by. And the phone rings. It's Letterman. I, I, I see on the, on the phone. It's, I said, hello. He said, didn't I tell you that's a better story? I told you. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh awesome. God. That's awesome. Yeah. F- flip to one of us. Yeah. Or one of our Sorry, one of our high. cameras went out. <laughs> that is an amazing story, though. Yeah. I mean, well, and real quick, while we're on the topic of Letterman, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, you guys have, you probably stay in touch. I mean, I don't, I mean, you do stay in touch, but I, do you, uh, do you ever like, are like, Hey Dave, you should take me on a ride in one of your cool cars. Or do you ever get to go see all the cool cars or. Oh, Jay, I've done seen Jay's, you know, Jay's got the great, you know, he's got two hangers or three hangers full of cars. My, my girlfriend, puts on classic car shows in Arizona. She lives in Arizona and she wanted to go to Jay's place. And so I called Jay and he said, yeah. And he took her around with me, him and me, you know, and, and just took her to every single car that he has there. It's, it's just amazing. I'm not a car guy. You know, uh, I got to tell you a quick story about that. One day, we're, I'm, I'm, and this is years ago, I, you know, I just started out and Jay was there at the improv and I had an old green Chevy and something was wrong with the car. And I was telling Jay about it. He lifted up the hood and he said, oh, I think it's your linkage. I said, what's a linkage? He said, you don't know what a linkage is. You're a pussy. What a pussy you are. You don't know what a linkage is. I said, I don't know what a linkage is. You don't know who Mickey Mantle is. And I, yes. I, I'm a pussy. He said, next time your car breaks down, call fucking Mickey Mantle. <laughs> but, but yeah, but, but Dave, no, Dave is not, uh, uh, when I, when I see Dave, you know, um, you know, we, we go to dinner, we, we, we go out, we, we talk on, on the phone. He, I've never driven in one of his cars or he's never, He's not that kind of guy, to be honest with you. He's he's very humble about and very self-deprecating. He, you know, he, he he knocks himself more than anybody. You know, um, uh, but but we're, we're the best friend. I I know that if I were to call him and tell him I needed him, he'd be there. I mean, he's a, you know that's the kind of friend he is. We don't talk about it much, but I know that he's always been in my corner. I did his show almost fifty times, wow. and he never wanted me to do stand up. In the earlier days when he was at NBC, I'd do stand-up, but he wanted me to come and tell stories. He wanted me to sit down and tell funny stories, and, and he always wanted a Sinatra story, you know. Um, and I did the show for times, but I came prepared. People say to me sometimes, well, Dave let you on the show because you're his friend. I said, yeah, but 
I came prepared. He, I knew exactly what he wanted, and I was prepared. I gave him set up questions, and I could, if we could hit it out of the park, and he could add it with me. And a lot of times, we just even did the stories because we had so much fun together, so much chemistry together. Uh, if if you want, if you're going to go on a national television show, be prepared. You know, good a friend as he was. But you look better under his armpit. I know, uh, right? Don't I? I feel yeah. like it's adding to it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So with uh, David Letterman and uh, I mean, I, I knew that you guys, I could tell you guys were great friends because it was different every time I watched an interview with uh, you on his show uh, versus anyone else. Like, not that he wasn't good with anyone else. I mean, don't go and tell him you were like, I met these guys in Chicago that are that we're talking bad about your interviews, but no, it was, uh, it was, it was just different. It felt like two friends catching up, you know? And like, but I, my favorite thing was every time you came on, he would always be like, tell me something about Sinatra. You know, it was always, that's what he started with was like, uh, and it was, uh, you know, I do want to touch on Sinatra a little bit with, uh, you, we, I read something where you said he would, uh, cut the binoculars in half and send uh, one of them to oh, us. You got it. You got the setup of that is. I know. I, know. I, want, I want you to do it. That's why I want you to stop me and do that. Yeah. Frank's an extra sense of humor. You know, his bodyguard, Julie Rizzo, was a tough guy, had one eye, a glass eye. He had it knocked out in a fight. And Sammy Davis Jr., of course, had one eye, a glass eye. On Christmas, when your Frank bought a set of binoculars, he saw it in half, sent one to Julie and one to Sammy, you know. <laughs> but is, that's, that's a true story, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, so with, like, he used to do funny things. He, he had a funny bone. He had a sense of humor, not necessarily uh, the self-deprecating. I don't know him on that, that, that he had that, but uh, but he had a sense of humor in the sense that he could – you know, hang with the best of the comedians and things like that. Oh, so. He loved, he loved a good laugh and he loved a good story. And I'll tell you, he had such tremendous respect for stand-up comedians, Frank Sinatra. One time uh, we were touring, we were down in Florida and after, in between shows, we were working a big arena in between shows. We had dinner backstage with a long table and he had the governor of, of uh, Florida and his wife. <clears throat> this was a long time ago and it was a long table. And I was at the end of the table and I heard the governor's wife say to him, she said, I can't, I don't know how you do that every night that you walk out in front of all those people and you sing those songs. And he said, he's got the toughest job in children's. And he pointed down at the end of the table at me and I was eating. I looked up, he was pointing at me. He said, that's the toughest job in children's, a stand-up comedian. You know, no orchestra, no arrangement, no special lighting. You know, uh, I, I always tell everybody, they'll say, what's it like opening for Frank Sinatra? And I'll say, let me, let me put it this way. Scotty, you say, I'll say Scotty. There's, it's five minutes before the show, and there's 20,000 people at the Nassau Coliseum, say, or at the United Center in, in Chicago, you know, or, or any, so there's 20,000 people out there, Scotty, and I want you to, I want you to go out there, and for the next 45 minutes, I want you to hold their attention. Stand in the middle of the arena. They're all around you. It's not in front of you. You're in the center, and they're all around you. I want you to stand out there for 45 minutes and hold their attention. Oh, one more thing. Jeez. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh for the next 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing. I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings and the emotions of 20,000 people. No props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no special orchestra, nothing. Just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Scotty, not one of them came to see you. Oh, my goodness. I mean... 
that's that's painting the picture of pretty much what you did every single night. I'm yeah. I'm curious. So obviously, I mean, yeah, obviously you you sold out arenas with uh, Frank all the time. But I'm more curious. Were there ever nights where you and him, just the two of you, got to es- like escape, go like find some like corner pub or something, and that was like a memorable moment? Or I'm just I'm more curious about nights away with Frank, away from the audience and away from the lights and all yeah, of that. Absolutely. First of all, you you said you and he sold out. No, he sold out arenas. I didn't sell them out. <laughs> hey, I mean, you brought something too. Yeah, well, you know, people always say, and for 14 years, he opened for Frank Sinatra. And I say, can I correct something? I, I like to think that Frank closed. For me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and I would tell that joke in front of him and he'd laugh. But yes, in answer to your question, oh, after shows, when we we're on the road, we'd always go somewhere, like if, if we we're working in the Desert Inn in Vegas or something, we'd stay in the coffee shop till four or five in the morning. But it was always with the group. But when I stayed at his compound, down in Rancho Mirage, I'd stay down there like five, six times a year. I had, he had a, a huge compound uh, that was all enclosed and then he had a big main house. He had swimming pools, tennis courts, but he had bungalows all around the outer perimeter that were called New York, New York, uh, Tender Traps, Strangers in a Night, My Way, named after his songs. And I'd stay in one of the bungalows. He'd sometimes get me at three o'clock in the morning. He never went to bed till the sun came up. So he'd say, Tommy, let's take a ride. And we'd go right around the desert. Whether we were on the road or off the road, he never went to bed till the sun came up. So in, in, at, at home, we'd ride around the desert, just him and I in a car, and we'd just open up. And th- those are really wonderful moments for me because in those moments, I, I he wasn't the great Frank Sinatra, and I wasn't the comedian Tom Lee. He was a kid from Hoboken, Illinois. Hoboken, New Jersey, I'm sorry. And I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois. And we just started talking about our childhood and our and and we, we got, when I first had a turn with Frank Sinatra, he was like the boss of the tour, obviously the boss, you know, and and and, and he knew everybody's album. You better know yours because that show was the most important thing, the show. But then as time went by, he became like a buddy. I'd hang out with him. And toward the end of his life, it was more like a father to me. You know, so these were wonderful moments being alone with him like that. And, and I, I always tell the story. One night he told me a very personal story and we're driving around and we're getting ready to pull back into the compound. He said, I shouldn't have told you that. I said, well, it won't go any further than this car. He said, I know, but I shouldn't have told you that. I said, well, like I said, it's not going out of this car. And besides, it isn't like we're strangers, we're friends, you know. And I don't know what made me do it. I says, pulling compound, I looked at him, I said, strangers in the night, exchanging glances. He said, oh, my God, if you're going to sing that song, get in key. <laughs> he said, for God's sake, get in key. Now, he goes, strangers in the night. I say, exchanging glances. He said, wandering in the night. I said, but we're the chances. And we start singing the song. Now, we pull in the compound. And I, and I park the car. Gets out, and he always hit me on the cheek. He'd sock me sometimes. Hey, Tommy, love you, pal. He'd say, good night, Tommy. I was going back to my bungalow. And I thought, if I went back to my old neighborhood right now in the bar with all the guys. And I said, I was just riding around with Frank Sinatra. And we were singing strangers at the night. They'd say, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It happened. And, and it's a moment I'll never, ever forget. That I mean, I, I miss him every day of my life. I swear. That sounds incredible. Is that is that what ignited the flame of you two casually singing songs together on stage? Oh, I never sang with Frank on stage. Oh, you I know, thought I, I, I swear no. I read that you did. No, no, I you know only in the car. You know I wouldn't dare. By the way, you know what? I, in my dressing room tonight, our dressing rooms are always like wherever we like whatever hotel. We I was under contract to seven different hotels with them. You know the Golden Nugget. 
the Desert Inn, the um, the, the MGM Grand, the, the Riviera, the Sands. The, uh, all, but and, you know, sometimes our dressings were right next to each other. And I'd be in my dressing room getting ready. And I might just be singing, you know, you know, you will be my music. You will be my song. And he would open up my dressing room door and he wouldn't say one word. He'd just look in the dressing room like this. You know, <laughs> like, in other words, you're singing next to me. And I'd look at him. i go, oh, you got it. Okay, okay. You know. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, Tom, yesterday when uh, when we spoke on the phone, we had talked uh, briefly about that uh, that part of the book, and I glanced over it, and I, I I feel like you can't really talk about Sinatra without bringing a little bit of that up, at least touching on it. I don't want to give too much away from the book, but where he uh, and Johnny Carson, he had he had saved Johnny Carson's life. Yeah, he uh, actually yeah. saved Johnny Carson's life from a mafia hit. It's in my book. And, and the only reason why I, I, I would tell this story now, but just a little bit of a longer story, you got to read a book. But Johnny Carson was a wonderful guy and, and, and the greatest late night talk show host of all time, I believe. I mean, and I love David and David, David would say the same thing. David runs a real close second, I'll tell you. But, um, but Johnny was a bad drinker. He, by his own admission, he, I'm going to digress. I was a bartender when I came out of the service. My buddies in the bar, when I was sober, watching them drink all night, most of the guys would do either become one of the three R's, I like to say it. Like after a couple of drinks, they became Rocky Marciano. They want to fight everybody in the place. Or maybe after a couple of drinks, they became Rudolph Valentino and they wanted to fuck everybody in the place. <laughs> <laughs> or then they became, or they became Rip Van Winkle and they just went to sleep. Alcohol affects everybody differently. Frank was Rocky Marciano. He'd get aggressive, you know, uh, uh, after a couple of drinks, you know. Uh, and, and so he's Rocky Marciano. Johnny would get silly. He became this romantic guy, you know. So Johnny Carson, by his own admission, was a bad drinker. And when he was in New York, he had just taken over the Tonight Show like a year and a half, two years. He was just just now getting started as a young star. And he went into Jilly's bar one night. Jilly had a bar in West 48th Street. Jilly Rizzo, Frank's bodyguard, was called Jilly's Bar. and the who's who of New York hung out at that bar. All the FBI guys and all the mafia guys. I mean, the cops, the robbers hung out there, you know, uh, movie stars, um, famous people, politicians. And Johnny Carson went in there one night when a guy named Crazy Joey Gallo was in there. Crazy Joey Gallo, he got his nickname when he was 17 because he killed his first man. Crazy Joey Gallo was a mean, psychotic killer. And there were five dons of New York. If you ever watch the movie The Godfather, you get all this. But the five dons, the don of like Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, uh, the Bronx, there was a, a don of every one of those boroughs. And they did not, they, they ruled those boroughs. Crazy Joey Gallo didn't pay any attention to them. He did whatever he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. You know, uh, you know he, he brought, uh, he, they only wanted like Sicilians in, in the outfit. He brought black guys into it to run numbers for him in the Harlem and all that stuff. He he, uh, when he wanted somebody whacked, he d didn't ask permission. So he had this reputation that the he didn't listen to the five downs. Crazy guy. He goes into Jilly's bar one night with two girlfriends. He was married, but he had Italian. Sonny, if you don't know, when you're an Italian guy and you got a girlfriend, she's your girlfriend. If you're single, but if you're married and you got a girlfriend, she's your gumadi. It's it's, it's you're my gumadi. Gumadi. Yeah, Gumadi. Gumadi are, are very, to Italian men in Chicago, where I grew up, Gumadi are very special. They had three holidays for an Italian man in Chicago. 
St. Joseph's birthday, St. Rocco's birthday, and December 23rd. That was Gumadi Christmas Eve. You know, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> that's when you took care of your Gumadi. Right. And, okay. And if you're a good guy, I'll tell you a funny Gumadi joke later on. But anyhow, so Preachy Joey's got these two Gumadis with him, right? And they're wearing mini skirts and everything. Anyhow, I'm not going to tell anymore, but Johnny Carson walked in. After Joey Gallo went in the back room with two of his buddies, he asked Shirley to have a, they needed to talk. He left the girls at the bar. Moments later, Johnny walked in with Ed McMahon, and Johnny had a lot of drinks, and he snuck up behind one of the girls and put his hand up her dress. And she let out a scream. And Julie jumped out over the bar and grabbed Ed McMahon and said, get him out of here now. Get him out of here fast. And Ed had the wherewithal to get him out of there. She kept screaming until she was hyperventilating. And crazy Joey Gallo came out and said to her, what's wrong? What's wrong? She couldn't get her breath. He slapped her to the ground until she got her breath. She said, Johnny Carson put his hand up my dress, and I'm not going to tell you the rest. It's in the book. He was a dead man. He was a dead man. And Joey Gallo sent his two thugs out, said, go out, find him, beat him to the ground, cut his dick off and stick it in his mouth. You hear me now? And they took off. And he turned on Jilly. He said, Jilly, you son of a bitch. You, you, you let this metagon, which is an Italian expression for a non-Italian, you let him put his hand up, Michael Macho. And Julie said, I was standing by, I didn't see anything. Anyhow, no long story short, these guys came back and said, we can't find him. And the rest is in the book. If it wasn't for Johnny Car- for Frank Sinatra, Johnny Carson would be dead. Frank Sinatra stuck his neck way out. It's in the book of how he did it. You know? Yeah, definitely. Again, well, I, I have to finish reading the book. I skimmed over it. It was in you said you said it to me yesterday. You said uh, it would put hairs on your neck, and as I'm skimming it, I'm like, and even listening to it now, I'm I've got hairs on the yes. back of my neck. So it just chills like that is. I don't know just, how that, but hasn't been in a movie like that scene, right? Or just or the overall tale because that's and the only reason I told that story is because Johnny Carson's lawyer Henry Bushkin wrote a book and tried to take credit for quelling that that he did that. There is no way in hell. Only Frank Sinatra could have done what he did. And and, and, it, and and you'll read in the book how that happened. And it was it was a scary moment for Frank. You know, uh, again, I don't want to go to the whole right, thing, but it's, right. in the, it's in the book, you know. And, and what Frank did was a brave and courageous thing because it was really scary. That's, man, I just, the, the, old, the old school days and how, how shit got handled is just mind-blowing. It's yeah. definitely different these days in Chicago. Yeah. Well, and didn't, I mean, Frank got in the scuffles. Like, scuffles happened all the time, didn't they? Where dudes were just yeah, fight, yeah. fight each other. Frank, and- Frank was a barroom scrapper. I, 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 as I said, I tended bar. I, I, I grew up on the streets and, and I had a lot of fights. And I, I had my nose broke twice, so you, I can't be too tough, right? <laughs> uh, but I can spot a guy when I was a bartender. And growing up on the streets, I could look at a guy in the eye and say, this guy's full of shit. He's full of shit. He couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. He's selling what we called wolf tickets. And the black community where I grew up with, where the black kids, wolf tickets were, you ever see the dog barking, wolf, wolf? He's not going to bite you. He's just wolfing. So <laughs> when you see a guy saying, man, I'm going to whip your ass and I'm going to kick your ass and I'll kick your mama's ass. And the, the, the black guys in my neighborhood look and say, he's selling wolf tickets. You know, he ain't going to do it. But there were guys, I could look a guy in the eye and say, this guy. Is so full of it. And then I look at another guy in the eye and say, this guy is dangerous. He's going to hurt somebody, you know. And Johnny, uh, Frank wasn't, Frank was a barroom scrapper kind of guy and, and, and might throw a punch at you when you ain't looking and Julia jump in. And, you know, Frank, 
didn't take a lot of liquid, but he was a scrapper. But Dean Martin was a tough, tough guy. Dean Martin boxed under the name of Kid Crochetti when he was a kid in Steubenville, Ohio. He had big hands and he, he really could fight. He could take, he was the toughest of the whole rat pack. He didn't talk about it, but everybody knew you didn't want to mess with Dean. You had your hands full if you did. Were, were you ever a part of uh, Dean Martin's roast back in the day? Yeah, I did two of them. I did uh, Dan Haggerty, who was uh, a Grizzly Adams on a TV show. We roasted him. And then uh, I, I roasted George Burns. Uh, and, and, and I was on two of the Dean Martin roasts. But I also, I, I played golf with Dean. And I did some shows with Dean, some corporate dates and, and a couple of, of different things. And I liked him a, a lot. I really liked him a lot. Gotcha. Yeah. My, um, so I, I told my parents that we were actually interviewing you and my dad's a big fan and he's also a big fan of Dean Martin. And he said, he said, uh, and I quote, ask him about Dean Martin and others drinking in TV as well as the Dean Martin roast. Yeah. Well, you know, by the way, a lot of people thought Dean was drinking all the time on TV, but he, he wasn't always, but he drank, believe me, he drank, but he wasn't always, but I'll tell you, they, what he, you guys are telling that, but Frank Sinatra did a movie called The Joker's Wild. He played a comedian called Joey Lewis. Joey Lewis was a singer and had his throat slit by the mob, and oh, yeah, and, okay. and, and ended up singing. I ended up being a comedian. Now Joey Lewis was drunk all the time. He drank on stage. Everybody knew it, but he could handle his liquor. But the fact that he was drinking, he could say a lot of things and get away with it because you say, ah, he's drunk. He's listening. He's talking. Now Dean. <laughs> would act like that. You know, Dean would walk out on stage and say, ladies and gentlemen, direct from the bar, welcome Dean Martin, you know. And Dean, you know, Dean would walk out and he'd walk up to the microphone. He'd say, you like, everybody loves somebody sometime. And he'd look over at his piano player and he'd say, how long have I been out here? <laughs> and everybody'd say, oh, he's drunk. He's drunk. But Dean emulated Joey Lewis, uh, that drinking, you know. But, but, but I, I'm not saying Dean wasn't a drinker. He could drink, you know. Right, right. Yeah, well, when I think of Dean Martin, I always think, uh, I feel like, didn't he used to always have, like, a glass in his hand or when he would, yeah. you know, go out and stuff? So, I mean, he was he was still, you know, drinking a little bit on TV, right? Or was, no, he, was that stage? That was stage. That would be iced tea. He wasn't dumb enough to get drunk. <clears throat> but he, 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 that character that he played could get away with a lot of things you say because he's drinking, you know, and people got yeah. a big kick out of it. You That's know, today... Funny. You know, Foster Brooks, his whole act was about a guy who was drunk. <clears throat> Today, the politically correct police would destroy him. You know, uh, that's not funny. Alcoholism isn't funny or something. You know, they would destroy right. him. By the way, here's my rant about the politically correct police. And if, you, if, if you've looked it up on YouTube, if you haven't, you can find it. But I say, who are these people that are trying to destroy comedy? The politically correct police. You know, who, who are these people? We don't know who they are. We have a First Amendment in this country. Men, thousands of men and women died so that we have the First Amendment. We can say whatever we want to say. We can't yell fire in a crowded theater, but we can say whatever we want to say because that's what the First Amendment is about. You don't have to listen to us. You can walk out on us. You can ask for your money back, but you can't tell comedians what or anybody in America <clears throat> what they can say and what they can't say. I say, and, and we keep apologizing to you, and we don't even know who the hell you are. You know, we know who the moose, uh, we know who the Democrats are, the Republicans are. We know who the independents are. We know who the moose, the Kiwanis, the Elks. We know who the Ku Klux Klan is, for God's sake. But we don't know who you are, and we keep apologizing to you. So this is my rant to you. Kiss my black ass. <laughs> I said, is that politically incorrect enough for you? 
<laughs> I, I think that was beautiful, to be honest. I mean, well, but because who, you know, I got to tell you guys, they cannot stop the. We have the Constitution of the United States. Lenny Bruce, a lot of the, a lot of these comedians went to jail for this, but we can say whatever we want to say. So we'll take you to court, and we'll win in court on the First Amendment. But it isn't the government that's going to destroy your career anymore. It's high tech, big tech. So if they don't like what you say, if you say something that's politically against what they think, they'll destroy your career. They'll 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 put it on social media, and pretty soon you'll be going to do a show. There'll be people picking out in front. You know, big not the government, but big tech could destroy your career if you don't fall on the shade. Start apologizing for everything. I was on a show one day, and I was telling a story about Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. It was a radio show. And I said, and Frank said to Dean, hey, Deg. And, 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 and the guy said, what? I said, well, Frank called him Deg, and he called Frank Deg. It was short for Dago. They called each other, hey, Deg. Hey, Deg. That's what they called each other. The guy said, wow. They couldn't get away with that today. I said, I would love to be in a room, I hope be on, on the 17th floor, where Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra call each other Deg, and you tell them you can't call each other that. <laughs> Open a window. You're going out the window. <laughs> Well, yeah, they seem like the kind of guys that wouldn't have listened to that anyway. You know, like someone would have been like, you can't say that. And they would have been like, who are you to say that? Yeah. Like, are you talking to me about like, like, I mean, especially like what we talked about earlier with the fact that, you know, like you, you can make fun of your own. Like if you're Jewish, you can only do Jewish jokes. You know, if you're, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, even along those lines, I mean, they were both Italian guys. They were both like, you know, the. The front men of Italian people, you know, if you're not looking at the mob, but, you know, you're looking at, like, the big stars of the time that represented the Italian community. So, yeah, well, I mean, but but again, there would be Italians that would probably say you can't say that. All of a sudden, everybody in this country is super sensitive to the point where it's gone too far now. You know what? It, 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 again, a comedian can say whatever they want. Anybody, when you say to a comedian, watch me close, guys. If I can do this. If you say to a comedian, I want you to go out there and by the way, don't say this and then don't say that and then don't say this and don't say that. You just put that comedian in a box and then everything that they are as a comedian. One of the great comedians of our time is a guy named Pat Cooper. If you ever knew about Pat Cooper, he said whatever he wanted to say, whatever he wanted to say it to whoever he wanted to say. And and a lot of people were offended by everything he said, but he didn't give a shit because he was a comedian who said what he wanted to say. You know, and, and that's what comedy is all about. Again, you don't have to buy their ticket. You don't have to go to their show. You don't have to. You can turn them off. Uh, you, you know, you can complain, but you can't stop them because of our First Amendment. That's what America is about. When you silence the comedian, we're the last bastion of freedom of speech. Once you start telling people what they can say, my brothers, listen to what I'm saying. Once you start telling people what they can say, the next step you're going to start telling them what they have to think. That's the next step. And that's communism. That's what socialism leads to is communism. They'll start telling you what you have to think when they start telling you what you have to say. So if you if you had a brand new comic walk through that door right behind you, hey, I know you'd probably be like, what the hell is going on? But if he's, if he's just starting your career, what would you tell him? Well, I mean, you know, there's so many things. Number one, start where you are. If you're in Toledo, Ohio, start there. Number two, work as often as you can. Get up on every stage, every chance you get everywhere. Volunteer to do charity work. 
say, I'll let me see your charity and do a couple of jokes in there. Whatever. Work as often as you can. Number three, I'd say maybe read the book, The Magic of Believing by Claude Bristol. Uh, if, if you don't believe in yourself, how can you expect others to believe in you? Read every positive mental attitude book you can get about the stage. Number four, realize no one is ever going to help you. You always think, oh, I'm going to get there. One day someone's going to see me and discover me. They won't till you're ready. They won't till you're ready. You know, you've got to be, if you're not marketable, they can't make any money off of you. So, get, you know, work it off of you again. Realize, don't start thinking someone's going to come along and discover you. You've got to do it, you know. And number, number five, don't ever quit if you really believe this. Bertram Russell once said, there are people in show business who become major stars simply because they didn't have sense enough to quit when they should have. That's my story. That's everybody's story. I slept in a car. My wife left me three times. She hated show business. I couldn't see my kids. I got them all back. I mean, I, I, I won in the end, but I wouldn't give up. You know, don't ever quit if this is your dream. If you really want to be a stand-up comedian. Now, there's a difference. Watch your ego. There's a difference between, you know, doing it because you want to show every one of those son of a bitches back home who said you'd never make it. And you want to own that, have several Rolls Royces and you'll show them and you're going to have a multi-million dollars. That's your ego. Right. Your spirit says, I love making people laugh. I love to hear the sound of laughter. I'm going to digress. The first time I ever went on stage with Tim Reed, I'd never been on stage before in my life. I wrote something that was funny. When I went on stage at night, I got a laugh. My very first time on stage. It was like one of those B movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through. And my whole being went, yeah. Oh, yeah. I found it. This is what I want to do. I've been wandering aimlessly. But now I knew I wanted to be a comedian. The thought that you might make a living as a comedian overwhelmed me that you could make a living making people laugh. <clears throat> I couldn't sleep all that night. It was a Friday night. I got up the next morning, a Saturday morning, and I went to the church that I had been an altar boy in. And I sang in a choir when I was a little boy, when my mom sang in a choir when she was a little girl. But it was, it was a Saturday. There was no service there. I was the only one in the church. And I got on my hands and knees and I prayed. I said, God, now I know what I want. I want to be a stand-up comedian. Please, God, let me make my living as a stand-up comedian. I'll do charities. I stopped making all these promises what I do. But I knew from that moment I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. That was 50 years ago in September 1969. In wow. September 2019, 50 years later, I went back to that church, and on a Sunday, I gave a sermon on the power of prayer. Wow. And I talked on the power of prayer, and I told that congregation, I knelt right there. That's where I knelt. I said, how many of you out there ever said you're thinking of somebody, and you hadn't seen them in a long time, and the phone rings, and it's that person? And you said, I was just thinking about you. And they said, I was thinking about you, too. Or you're walking down the street, and you said... I can't believe it. I'm seeing, I'm just talking about you. And I just, uh, and I said, how many is that? And they all raised their hands. I said, if human beings can transfer thought, and obviously we can, then how much can a supreme being transfer thought? Can you transfer thought to a supreme being? I believe in God. I believe in a higher power. I, I, I have, my, and I've really agonized over at times in my life. But in the end, I just, you know, I, I, I used to talk to Alan Shepard, the first man in space, and I said to him one time, uh, Alan, he was drinking a lot of martinis, you know, drinking, he was long since retired. I said, Admiral, you were out on the moon, and you looked out into outer space. You know, there are 400 billion galaxies out there, 
is there a God? He said, after a moment, he thought about it. He said, there's something really powerful out there. And that's what I think. So I say the supreme being. So I'm just, I'm saying all that to say, you know, that if, if you're a comedian, you want to be a comedian, you have the passion that I had, you have that same passion, then that's what you want to be. Then, then don't let anybody get in the way of that. And by the way, you may not ever fill an arena of, of 20,000 people. You may most sell 50 people in your life, 50 tickets or 100. But if you're making a living as a stand-up comedian, that's what you want to do. Then don't let anything get in the way of that. Don't ever quit. Amen to that. Yeah, that's awesome. I um, I did want to ask about uh, the... Uh, like meeting Tim Reed also when, when you met Tim Reed, you had just, uh, you, you hadn't even been on stage yet. You guys were going around doing the, uh, presentations to the school. Well, I, about- I, I, we were in the JCs. Oh, the JCs, the JCs. The JCs in those days were young men of action, 18 to 36 years of age. They were, anytime there was a problem in the community, they worked on that problem. They, they would, Form a committee, and they teach you how to serve on the committee, how to how to chair a committee, how to serve on subcommittees, how to how, or, or, how to conduct a meeting. They they had a lot of great training programs, leadership training programs. One of the and they attacked the problems of the community. One of the biggest problems in those days was our youth using drugs, as it is today. And I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor, uh, a concept I had on, on, on getting the kids laughing and then planting the seeds of the ills of drug abuse, helping me. And I'm going to go back to, I was praying at that time, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? I'd be in a bar with my buddies at two o'clock in the morning saying, I don't belong here, but I didn't know where I belong. And I would pray. I said, God, what is it? Show me what is I'm supposed to be doing. I'd go from job to job and was never felt fulfilled. But I had a, when I proposed this drug education program, I had a friend going to help me, a white guy named John DeBoer. And the night I presented this program to the JCs, so they'd sanction it, this young black kid came up to me. It was his first time in, 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 at a meeting. He had just been, came from Norfolk State College. E.I. DuPont recruited him in Chicago as a marketing rep. And he joined the JCs. And he, he said, I would like to work with you on that project. I said, gee, thanks, but I got a guy already. And he said, okay. The next day, as fate would have it, John DeBoer told me, I can't do that project. I got a new job. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. I got a hold of Tim. We start working on the project. We went into the classroom. The moment I walked in the classroom with him, I realized what a blessing this was because the children were black and white. So we were young guys. We walked into the classroom. They see a young black guy and a young white guy. And we were telling jokes off of one another, fooling around, making people laugh, playing records, getting the kids' attention. And then once we got them relaxed, we start presenting our program in the Oza Targeting. After about eight months, the program became very successful. A little eighth grade girl came as we were walking. She was walking out of the classroom. She said to Tim and I, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black, white comedy team intrigued us. No one had ever, no one had ever done that before in the history of, of show business, the history of America. So we decided that's what we're going to do. And we start writing what we thought was material. And uh, there were no comedy clubs. One night we went into a club and, uh, and we got up and, and, you know, and as they say, the rest is history. But. Uh, we paid dues like no other act ever had to pay. 1969, Civil Rights Act, the, the Civil Rights Act had been passed only five years prior to that. You didn't see a black guy and a white guy walking down the street together, let alone get on the stage together. 
Uh, there were race riots all over America in every major city, Philadelphia, Chicago, in my neighborhood in Harvey, where I grew up at, one of the biggest riots in the country. Uh, students were protesting the Vietnam War. Ra Vietnam War was raging. You know, I had just gotten out of the service gym, just got out of college, and we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. Wherever there was racial tension, we weren't preaching, but we went. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did uh, colleges, high schools, wherever there was racial tension. The county jail in Chicago three times. <clears throat> you know, uh, wherever there was tension, we went and tried to make people laugh. And 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 I'll close with this. I, the team stayed together six years. We did an album. You know, he's my best friend to this day. I, I love him to death. And, and his children, his children call me Uncle Tom. When I leave here tonight, I'm going to dinner with his daughter, Tori, and his first wife, Rita. Uh, they're here. They call me Uncle Tom. The kids call me Uncle Tom, which it, it turned into some funny stories. <laughs> you know, Uncle Tom. You know, one time at Norfolk State College, Tim and I were given a lecture and we were selling books. And Tori hadn't seen me for about a year, his daughter. and. I was at a buffet table before we spoke with seven black college professors. We were getting our food and Tori came in and she was clear across the room and she saw me. She started hollering, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom. And I'll, <laughs> these black professors turned around, looked at her, you know, and I said, she's talking to me. You know, she, I'm, 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 I'm Uncle Tom. But uh, again, we pay dues. You know, I'll close with this. I can't tell you how many times after Tim and I were doing a show where there was racial tension where a young white guy would come up to us and say, you know, I got a black friend that I'd like to reach out to, but if I do, the white guys are gonna give me a bad time. But after watching you and Tim, I'm gonna reach out to my black friend. Then a black guy would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend. I like the guy, but the brother's gonna wear me out. But after watching you and Tim, I'm gonna reach out to my white friend. That means more to Tim and I than any awards you could give us or any. That happened to us all the time. That's yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. And like as I was reading through that chapter in the book, I was like I was like almost having chills. Like even the, you know, the different racial tension you talked about in the book, uh, where after the first night you guys got off the stage, things like that. Uh just, you know, the normal things that you read about in a history book, basically, that maybe we don't like growing up in this era experience the blatant racism as much as the subtle racism um but it, it was just uh insane to me as it, and then when i when i mentioned to you on the phone and you said well actually you know i don't say it as biracial i say it as the first black and white but then the only black and white that was surprising to me that no one else had thought to do that so far but do, do you have any like like why do you think no one has explored that option now well, you know, what's so funny about that is, is that, that, uh, it, that, first of all, there aren't a lot of comedy teams today. When I started, there were a lot of comedy teams because there isn't a lot of, you can't make a lot of money as a comedy team. You know, you got to split the money when you're starting out. But in the days we had the Playboy circuit and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's so funny. <clears throat> They're always talking about, imagine this was over, this was 51 years ago. Tim Reed and I were America's first black white time. And guess what people were talking about? Race relations. You know, we need more discourse among the races and race relations. We need race relations. Well, Tim Reed and I were having the discourse America wasn't having. You know what we were having on stage? Race relations. We were, <laughs> you guys having relations. You know, we were making people laugh. We were poking fun at both, both all of our stereotypes. And so we were having a discourse America wasn't having. And to this 51 years later, they're saying, you know, we need better race relations. You know, Tim Reed and I, were, we're, you know, we were a threat. 
that I got to tell you that I don't think racism exists today as much as the media wants you to believe. I believe that almost every most black folks I've met in my whole life, they don't hate white people. And most white people do not hate black people. Are there some who do? Yeah. You know, when Tim and I worked with the black clubs at Chitlin Circuit, if we worked an all black club and there was a black guy who hated white people, hated him with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. If we worked a, a white redneck club where there was a white guy who hated black people, he wasn't mad at Tim. He was mad at me for being with Tim. You know, and three of them got me down in a, in a men's room down in Atlanta, Georgia, when I tried to do a number on me. But, but I, uh, again, I'm a street guy, and, and that's another story. But, but um, you know, they, 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 they it's, it's so interesting how to this day they're still talking that. that and, and I, I got to tell you, the media, there are people who really profit by us being divided. You know, profit by it. And, and I've watched them for years. You know, they're, they're, they're race baiters. You know, it doesn't exist as much as they want you to know it exists. You know, they, you know, be careful of divide and conquer. If you read my book, when we first started out, Tim Reed and I, a very good friend of mine, a black guy who was a lead singer in the Dells, he told, told us, Tim and I went to his house. We had not been on stage at all. We wanted his advice. We said, Marvin, he was Marvin, a very good buddy of mine. I grew up across the street from him. He was a lead singer. He said, Tom. It's a great idea, you and Tim. No one's ever done that before. But as we were leaving, he said, be careful. They're going to try to break you guys up. And Tim and I stopped and he turned to what he said. I said, who? He said, they. I said, who they? He said, whoever. They're going to come to you, Tom. And I said, you don't need that black guy. You're funny without that black guy. Tim, they're going to go, you don't need that brother. You don't need that white boy, that honky. You don't need him. You're funnier than him. He said, be careful. That's going to happen. And sure enough, it did. You know, that kind of stuff happened. And, and there are people in this nation who enjoy us fighting, because as long as they keep us fighting together, they can destroy America. You can't destroy America militarily. We're the strongest military ever that existed on this planet. I spent four years in the military. I'm a proud patriot. I fly my American flag, and I stand for the national anthem, and I believe in this country. I believe in the Constitution of the United States. You know, you, you, But be careful. There are people who want to break us up. They can't break us up militarily from outside, but inside they can destroy you. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. Get us fighting amongst one another. And be careful of that. And it, 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 it kind of circles back to what we were talking about at the beginning um, of what people take in and like the toxicity of what social media can bring you and all of that and just how you perceive it. Like when, I mean, when, I guess, when the world was going crazy not too long ago, I took a break off social media. And I mean, the things I just realized about, yeah, how exhausting it was and just mentally draining and like soaking that all in is just insane but those people that tried splitting you guys up i mean that's that's kind of what cancel culture is so cancel culture was you know yeah. existed back then too yeah they just call racism something different these days yeah yeah I mean, again you know I, I i can't tell you the other thing is let's make everybody feel like victims because if you're a victim you'll never become a victor so if you're a victim you know, see, a victim is a wonderful, I, I, I tell the class, I had eight brothers and sisters. My mom and dad were alcoholic. I had holes in my shoes. Oh, poor me. You know, psychiatrists would say, you know, that childhood that boy had, if he went to prison, it wasn't his fault. Bullshit. Bullshit. It's my fault. It's my fault. You know, I'm, not a, I'm not a victim. I'm a victor. I, I, I gave a, you probably heard me do this, but I gave a motivation speech to a, a group of young guys. And I told them, 
how long do you think you should live with your parents? And one boy said to her, 40 or 50 if we want to. And I said, oh, really? I said, why? He said, because, you know, we didn't ask to be here. Said, we didn't ask to be here. I said, I don't want to give you a biology lesson. But when your mother and father made love, from your father came five million seeds. Did you know that? Two and a half million died instantly. The other millions died along the way. And soon there was only 100,000 seeds left. And then there was 500 seeds left. And then there was only 100 seeds left. And guess what? There was only five seeds left. Four, three, two, one, you. You. Don't ever tell me you didn't ask to be here. Bullshit. You fought to be here. When I was in the service, I, I started reading all these books, The Power of Your uh, <clears throat> Positive, The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale, A Guide to Confident Living. I started reading all these books on how to improve my mind. I was 17 years old when I was in the military. And, and like most 17 year old boys, I was reading these 10 cent novels where somebody got laid on every page. <clears throat> and an old black guy in my ship said, Tom, if you're going to read so much, read something that'll improve your mind. So I started reading all these positive mental attitude book uh, and, and the psycho cybernetics and, and the power of your subconscious mind by Joseph Murphy and all these books, positive, Dale Carnegie, positive mental attitude. And it started to help me change my life around. I changed my thinking. And once I got there, I wanted other people to feel the same relief that I was feeling that this, that negative thoughts don't control you unless you allow them to control you. I would take a glass of water in my classroom and I'd pour dirt in it and I'd stir up the dirt and I'd hand it to somebody and say, drink it. And they wouldn't drink it. I said, you won't drink dirt. Why would you think dirt? If you won't ingest filth in this part of your body, why would you put filth in this part of your body? Negative thoughts are dirt. You are in control of this vehicle you have. This is the vehicle I was given. It's like the pilot who flies a 747 every day from LA to Boston. Do you think he drives to the runway, uh, drives to the airport 100 miles an hour? goes out on the tarback, slams on his brakes, runs aboard the aircraft, takes off down the runway and say, now where am I going? He files a flight plan. <laughs> you, this is your vehicle. File a flight plan. I teach them how to do that. I love motivating people. I think it was Mark Twain that said, stay away from small people. Stay away from people who belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that. Successful people want you to become a success as well. And that's the way I feel. I want everybody I meet to become a success. I, let me help you. Let me talk to you. Let me encourage you. You know, I, I, that makes me feel good. You know? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's awesome. And uh, I don't want to hold you for too long. I know you're going to dinner. Um, but we, uh, I have one last final question, uh, which is when you're in Chicago or when you would come to Chicago, was there anywhere that you were like, this is my go-to. I got to go here. I got to get dinner here. I got to go to a, and grab a drink some like somewhere specific. Cause you knew the owner, the bartender, like somewhere that felt kind of like home. Well, by the way, there were so many of those places when I was a drinker, I quit drinking a long time. I didn't run the program. I just one day said, I'm sick and tired of waking up sick and tired. But I used to hang around the Hotsy Totsy bar on division street. It's not there anymore. PJ Clark's, uh, with Frank, we hung out in the pump room at the Ambassador East. They have the pump room. And if you go in there now, even now, they got the back booth where we used to sit. They got a picture of Frank there. Uh, but when I go to Chicago, I go to Gibson's, uh, Gibson's Steakhouse. Uh, of course, I also invested in Tavern on a Rush across the street from Gibson. So I go hang out in front there. Uh, but Steve Lombardo, the owner of Gibson's, is a good friend of mine. Carmine's, Alex Dana is a good friend of mine. They, they, he owns Rosebud and Rosebud and, and Little Italy. I took Frank to dinner there many times, you know. Uh, 
when you go in the, and if you go in the car mines, there's a picture of me and Frank on the wall and, and, uh, and the same way at Gibson. I just, I love Chicago and I miss Chicago every day. Uh, I don't miss 40 below zero, but, uh, <laughs> I miss Chicago. But that's where I hang out. <laughs> I hear Gibson. that. You know, guys, you're right. I yeah. do have to go to dinner. I can't, we've been here two hours and it went by like five hours. It was just, it went by, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> But it was great being with you guys. And it was definitely great uh, getting the chance to talk to you for this long. And we're grateful for that. Uh, but yeah, if, um, yeah, well, I'll let you know uh, when we release this. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your time. Well, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to, um, uh, oh, look at that. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to see that I'm going to look on Amazon when you get my book. And I'm going to see after doing this show airs. How big a show you got because the sales have got to go through the roof after talking to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm going to put the link uh, for everyone to, that listens to this. They can buy it. The link is in the description. Uh, and uh, make sure to check out and uh, follow Tom at tomdreesen.com and on uh, social. So thank you again, Tom. And, uh, thank you, Tom. And have, uh, have fun at dinner. Okay, thank you, good. Tom. Have a good dinner. Great to be with you guys. Take care. <laughs>